And welcome to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I'm John Howard, and I am joined by my colleague, as usual, Tim Foster. Hi, John. And our special guest today is Carl Cannon, executive editor of the Real Politics Media Group. But not to let you think he's just an editor and doesn't work for a living, he's also Washington Bureau Chief of Real Clear Politics, uh, which means he knows what's going on in, Wa- in Washington, we hope. And we wanted to ask him about um, the clown show, so to speak, that's going on right now in the House. As we speak, they've completed 11 votes. Uh, McCarthy has gone through 11 votes for speaker, gone nowhere. Um, the next uh, session hasn't come up yet, but we want to ask Carl what he thinks. So, Carl, thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure, John. So the first question I've got is, why can't he put together, Kevin McCarthy put together, um, given the Republican majority, enough to grab the speakership? Well, the short answer is that uh, um, Justice Alito <laughs> heard him way back in June. You know, if you remember that 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 case, that one that uh, they overdid Roe Ro v. Wade, Chief Justice John Roberts said, "Let's just uphold this Mississippi statute. Let's not go full bore and overturn Roe." But they did, and the Democrats really got a lot of sustenance from that. And people didn't think it would happen. The polls showed it. The Democrats talked about it. They ran on, uh, and the whole midterms changed. And what happened in the midterms was, it was less of a referendum on President Biden because you know the, the fundamentals that pollsters and political scientists like to talk about weren't good Democrats. The economy wasn't doing great. The president's job approval rating was in the low 40s and midterms, are a chance for buyer, for voters to exercise buyer's remorse anyway. Uh, but suddenly the dynamic, dynamic changed. It wasn't just a referendum on President Biden and some of the policies that the Democrats had pursued that weren't popular at the border and crime. Suddenly it was on Republican Party extremism and Trumpism. And the, the Roe v. Wade decision fit into this larger narrative and the Democrats ran on it and people scratched their heads and thought they didn't know what they were doing. They did know what they were doing. And they kept the margins down really low. And so Kevin McCarthy wakes up, you know, first week in November, instead of a 20 or 30 uh, vote majority in his conference, he had a five vote majority. Look, you've got 40 people in the House Freedom Caucus, the so-called Freedom Caucus. Now only five of them, you know, in a conference that includes Lauren Boebert and Matt Gates. So let's just say three sane people could stop him from being yeah. Um, speaker and the same group that drove John Boehner out of town, that drove Paul Ryan out of out of the speakership. These are the same people have now decided they don't want Kevin McCarthy as speaker, or if they do, they want him to to be a speaker who's so weak that it's not worth having the job. And so this was politics, and the politics that really hurt McCarthy happened on election day. If the, if his um, if McCarthy's negotiating position is is what I've been reading is that to. To get those um, 20 or 40 Freedom Caucus members, he has to give away, he has to agree to certain conditions they want in the power structure of the House. If he doesn't want to do that or can't do that, what happens to the other people, the 200 or so that have been voting for him? I saw comments this morning saying, you know, if he gives this away, if he does this, if he changes the committee uh, fundraising issues, committee issues, the single person getting on the floor and doing a motion to vacate the chair. If he does all that, why are we voting for him? What, what, 
do they go back to ground zero? You know. Well, that's a good question, John. The the, the short answer is that I mean, who else is there? You know, you this guy. I saw the cable news types all week. You know, Jake Tapper and the people at MSNBC. The humiliations heaped on Kevin McCarthy. Well, you know, you can say that it, it didn't probably didn't feel good getting rejected eleven straight times. But in what in what world do you win a vote? 200 votes to 20 and you're humiliated i mean let's yeah let's start with that although to be to be fair yeah team jeffries has gotten more votes than him every time so that i would think that's a little embarrassing when you're the majority you know you you control the house majority well i i i i get that um tim i was wondering you know if six or eight of these Republicans were in the bathroom or something, uh, these idiots could elect Hakeem uh, Jeffrey Speaker by accident. So I, I was watching the vote. I, I don't want to be a nerd because there's other things going on, but I was watching those votes to make sure that didn't happen. And, actually, and that th- came up, uh, Carl, that actually yeah. came up. I saw a quote from somebody um, yesterday that said, you know, if 10 or 12 of the Republicans would basically vote present, um, what does that mean Jeffrey's a speaker? Well, they did that for a while during the vote to adjourn, and uh-huh. th- and that wouldn't have been so dangerous. You would have just stayed in session. But that's right, Hakeem Jeffries would be speaker if they blew that. So th- they're operating these thin margins. Well, well and I- what I also saw was interesting is uh, I saw a quote from Matt Gates saying he was working with his Democratic colleagues to make sure that they were always there, so that there was enough of them there to make sure that McCarthy didn't get elected. <laughs> That's great. That's yeah, cool. so I was like, man, this is really some, you know, this is inside politics that frankly, you know, and thankfully 99.9% of the American public does not care about, is not paying attention to. But for folks like us, this is, you know, get out the popcorn. <laughs> well, yeah, but you know what, Tim, there, there's a danger to for the Democrats there. And I, I um, you know, I, I saw this, I forget his name. He was the guy uh, he worked. He's from Chicago. He worked for Obama all those years. Remind me what's he used to have the mustache. He shaved it. He's now Axelrod. Yes. David, David Axelrod. And he said, look, Ted Lou made a popcorn tweet or something. He said, you know, it's, we need to be careful with that. We Democrats at some point voters are going to, American people are going to look to us too and say, well, wait a minute, what are they doing? Now I'm not saying that the Democrats should help McCarthy although in a functional society they would, but that's not how Washington works. Um, but the argument against, the, the, why couldn't the Democrats give six votes to help McCarthy, uh, who's an affable guy, it's somebody they can deal with. Uh, the answer you hear is, well, they wouldn't do it if their shoe was reversed, which is about you know the zero-sum politics that describes Washington. But the danger to Democrats is that at some point, it'll be a pox in all their, both their houses. And this just contributes to dysfunction because they keep voting for Hakeem Jeffries, um, knowing that he can't get there. Uh, for his part, if I'm Hakeem Jeffries, yeah, I'd like this to go on another six or eight ballots. I could always have on my in my resume that I was elected by my conference to be speaker more times than Sam Rayburn. That wouldn't be bad. <laughs> so like Willie Brown out here in California many years ago. Uh, you know, California has always had the reputation of being a crazy place and many times well-deserved legislatively. But when they did a couple changes out here, one, get a budget out of you, get your pay docked. And another one was allowing a budget to be approved with a majority vote only. For whatever reason, that 
change the dynamic. That really changed a lot out here. Is something like that possible at the federal level? Or we, is it too institutionalized and, you know, can't do it? Well, that's a good question, um, John. I don't really know. I do remember, you know, when, Mac when Kevin McCarthy served in Sacramento, um, he was sort of known to be this affable guy who, who, who really got along with all his members and could get conservatives yeah. and moderates to work with him. There, there are no liberals in the California, in the Republican party, by the time he came along, I, I think, I guess Pete McCloskey's still alive, but he wasn't active in politics. Um, but, but McCarthy had this, uh, this, you know, this thing, there's, it was a great vignette. It was in the New Yorker, I think a profile of him when Fabian Nunez and, uh, and McCarthy came up together and they were sort of the stars of their class and, and they became friends. And Nunez showed McCarthy his book where he kept track of all the birthdays uh, of the, his members in his conference. And McCarthy said, surprised Nunez said, yeah, I have one just like it, but you don't have wedding anniversaries. I actually have wedding anniversaries. So here's a guy in Sacramento who can really get along with, with people who that's his, you know, and he, and of course he wanted to, when he got there, he decided he wanted to go to the house. And when he got to the house of representatives here in Washington, he wanted to be speaker. And people have said that he wants it too much and that this is a rap against him, that he wants the job too much. That he's purely transactional and he doesn't stand for anything. He just wants the job. But as events unfolded this week, I, I, took, I had another take on that. And I thought that's probably a good qualification because the guys, um, you know, Boehner and Ryan, you know, who didn't really want the job, they, they didn't succeed in it. I mean, who would want one of the reasons Steve Scalise hasn't raised his hand is because he's not sure he wants it for the reasons that you guys both mentioned. If you have a conference where one person, and this seems to be a sticking point, I don't know that McCarthy's agreed to it as of this taping, where one person can stand up and say, um, I make a motion to vacate the chair and you have to have a vote on it. Well, that could be Maxine Waters. That could be Matt Gates, That could be anyone. Uh, what, what kind of, what kind of body could operate that way? And so, but McCarthy seems to be temperamentally suited. He's a guy who can kind of operate in that atmosphere. So people say he's going to trade away all the reasons you want to be speaker. I don't know that that is a good understanding of his temperament or personality. I think he just wants the job. And again, I don't necessarily think that's a wrap against him in this environment. Well, I would say uh, that he, in the last seven or eight years, really has shown that he's not so driven by uh, ideology as much as just sort of a go along, get along attitude. I mean, here was a guy who I'm sure 10 years ago, if you would have asked him about tariffs, he would have said, absolutely not. No tariffs. We should never have tariffs. And then Trump comes along and throws tariffs out the windows. And he's, of course, we we can't have, you know, we need tariffs. So, uh, you know, he hey, just, you were at the you were at the journal, California Journal. I remember when the journal ran that uh, article on uh, they did the they did the thing every year on rookies of the year, and guess who was the rookie was Kevin McCarthy, and you know we what uh, Carl what you're talking about being friendly and affable well he was very much that and he was also a network, uh, a networker par excellence you know and he uh, would give flowers to the wives of the members remember the birthdays of the kids uh, made a point of being always you know a lot of personal contact. So when people in D.C., members in D.C. say they don't like him, it's hard to it's hard to imagine how that is. Tim and I talked to a legislator out here um, yesterday, Republican, moderate Republican, who said he remembered McCarthy with uh, a lot of fondness. 
so what is it? He what happened in D.C. for a lot of people say, oh, we don't like him. We can't stand it. It's like a well, transformation. You know? Yeah. I, yeah. But I don't think he's changed. Well, I guess there's two things. First of all, is that most people still like him. But you, you've got this small minority of hardliners and, and they call themselves conservatives, but they're not really conservative. They're kind yeah. of they're more radicals. Um, but these traits that used to be uh, appreciated in Washington, uh, if you want to get along, uh, you want to get along, go along. That's Sam Rayburn who said that. Yeah. And but now if you want to, then you're a, a hopeless squish. You're a rhino. You're a traitor. You're a you're a, a denizen of the swamp. You're an alligator, the biggest alligator in the swamp. So why, what does McCarthy get? To, why do they call him these names? A, because he's affable. That's now something against you. You're supposed to be an angry. This is These people like Boebert, they're the opposite of Ronald Reagan, right? They're the opposite of Hubert Humphrey. They're not happy warriors. They're very unhappy warriors. And the other thing is McCarthy's fundraising ability is now used against him. And I remember there was another California politician in the house from the Valley, Tony Coelho, who I knew well and covered. And Tony, and Tony told these, these Democrats, this is in the eighties. Uh, we need to match the Republicans in money. We need to raise money. If we're going to compete, these, these elections are now nationalized. Tip O'Neill's old rule about all politics is local is turn is turning on its head. All politics is national. We need to raise money. And he would go to places where Democrats weren't used to raising money and people accused him some of the progressives in the Democratic Party of selling his soul. Now the reverse has happened to Kevin McCarthy. Um, and none of these people, uh, Tim and John, are old enough to remember Jess Unruh, who said money is the mother's milk of politics. And, and so McCarthy's, look, McCarthy is probably, you guys are in California, you know better than me, but he's probably the most prominent Republican left in California. I mean, there's no statewide office holders. Uh, Pete Wilson's re long retired. Arnold has gone on back to the Hollywood. Um, How does that play out, by the way, in California, if McCarthy does retain the speakership? Uh, I assume there are advantages to California. If a Californian is speaker, there, I think there were under Pelosi. Well, I uh, think so. And, 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 and again, you know, in a, in, a, in a different and better world, Pelosi and McCarthy would have had common purpose. She, for reasons I never understood, kind of rebuffed him and they didn't really get along. But uh, but California, you know, the largest state, the largest economy, uh, we native Californians take pride in Pelosi and even though she grew up in Baltimore, uh, but to have to have our second a second speaker, it has ancillary sort of benefits. But for the California Republican Party is direct benefits. This guy's a fundraising machine. I don't know how they'd replace him. What, what's the path forward then, do you think? Is there a path forward for McCarthy or how does this get resolved if you look at your crystal ball and. One day, for our listeners, just to put this in perspective, we are recording this on Friday morning. Yeah. Uh, by the time you hear this, perhaps we'll already have speaker uh, Andy Biggs may already be installed. So, so <laughs> yeah. know what's going on. All right, so, Tim, I'm going to go. Tim, thank you for that. But I'm going to go out on a limb and saying it won't be speaker Andy Biggs, but it could be speaker Steve Scalise. I mean, look, the way out of it is, is that the rebels finally... Uh, you know, McCarthy's offered them almost everything they wanted as they finally learn how to say yes. And you're going to have a couple of holdouts. Uh, Bobert and Matt Gates, they can't bring themselves to support McCarthy for reasons I don't understand. But you have two or three. You can have four holdouts. You can't have five. Um, and so there, there's two ways out to me that that, that are obvious. Um, and one is, is that these they finally say yes, because they're asking McCarthy for things, for concessions, and he's agreeing to them, but they're still saying no. So a major, most of these holdouts, there's 20 of them, 15 of the 
15 or 16 of the holdouts say, okay, thank you. Uh, we, we wore you out and they vote for McCarthy. And the other one is, is that Kevin McCarthy finally just says, all right, uh, I can't get there from here, withdraws his name. There's a groundswell for Steve Scalise. These same people would have trouble attacking Scalise the way they do McCarthy, um, not to put too fine a point on it, but he has two things going for him. One, he's not from California for some of these Southerners. And the other is that he, he you know, a, a liberal shot him. You know, he has the battle scars. They want a culture war. Well, this guy's the scars to prove it. So Scalise, to me, they'd have more trouble voting against. Um, but, you know, Dan Crenshaw, who is a literal combat veteran, said we'll vote 200 times for McCarthy if we have to. So who knows? Are any of those optional uh, other names that came up? Uh, and I admit I've never heard of these people until these votes were going forward. But uh, Byron Donalds of Florida, uh, another Hearn was another one who got votes. Well, Kevin Hearn of Oklahoma. Well, once Lauren, Lauren Bobit mentioned his name, uh, he couldn't be speaker. I mean, they're not going to they're not going to take orders from her. So, of course, uh, on the on Twitter and and out in the larger media world, people are talking about some sort of a unity speaker, which, frankly, if this was a well-run government, this would be a logical thing in a, in a closely divided house. You would find someone that was a Republican, but a slightly more moderate Republican, the Republican that could work with Democrats, work with everyone. That would be a, you know, a functional way to go. But it seems like that is totally unrealistic in this partisan atmosphere. Now, I thought it was ironic, personally, that in the middle of this, this speaker drama where the Republicans are sort of uh, pulling their eyes on each other, here in Cincinnati, you had the president, a Democrat, and the senator from Ohio, a Democrat, and Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader of the Senate, all on the same page, talking about infrastructure, talking about building a new bridge uh, that's going to connect Kentucky and Ohio, and kumbaya, look, we're all working together. And you would think that this is an evidence that compromise can work and that we can work across the aisle, but in the House, that seems like an absolute no-go. And that's totally, totally never going to happen. Is that correct? Well, going to have I, a unity speaker. I, I don't, I don't think it's going to happen, Tim. But I'm, a, I'm a good government advocate as much as you are, and I, I think it would be logical and helpful to the country. Um, you know, there are a couple of things going against it. One is Republicans only have the House; you know, they don't have the Senate anymore and they don't have the white house and so this is their one they would be very reluctant for understandable reasons to give it up but to take a step back and look at it with more altitude in terms of how american governance ought to work this one this this winner take all mentality you know the electoral college works that way the house works that way the senate works that way it's not a very workable system and i don't criticize the founders but remember they're on record as saying they didn't want political parties to exist so they couldn't have envisioned this but the idea that if you if you control the Senate by one vote, not even one vote, if it's 50-50, but you have the vice presidency, you get to control the agenda, the budget, the committee assignments, the calendar. It doesn't make much sense. I mean, if you were starting over, you know, Peter Drucker used to say that business guru, if we're going to do something, let's uh, we, we do it this way. If not, let's stop and start over. The House of Representatives, same, same, same thing. I mean, it's a five vote majority. Um, yeah, it would make sense for some power sharing. But first of all, nobody somebody would have to go first and nobody's ever done what you're talking about even though it would be just good for the country and well, secondly not even that they would give it to the democrats that they would give it to or the the democrats would agree to support a republican who 
agreed to some, you know, some yeah, but in here, but here's and here's where Trump comes in. He's the he's the he's the barrier to this kind of thinking. So who would be good in that job? Oh, Fred Upton, how about him? It's just he's retiring. You don't have to be a member of the of the house to be the speaker of the house, which is an interesting feature of the constitution. Never happened before. But here's a guy who's retiring and he knows the house, respected and even loved in both sides of the aisle. Pick him, let him run it. Well, he voted for Trump's impeachment. So believe me, these these Freedom Caucus guys, they'd rather die. You know, could you get enough Democrats to do it? I don't know. You know, that that those 212 solid votes for Hakeem Jeffries, that cuts both ways. It makes Jeffries look good, makes him look strong, makes the Democrats look organized, but also shows you uh, where those where those good votes going to come from. Who are going to be the six or 10 or 20 Democrats who go against Hakeem Jeffries? So I don't I don't think you can get there from here. Although if you and I were designing uh, how Congress ought to operate today for the first time, that'd be the first thing we'd come up with. Right. How to share power. No, this leads to my favorite rant about uh, the speaker, the speaker of the House of Commons, uh, um, who is deliberately chosen, must be chosen by with votes uh, from all parties, from the various constituencies in the House, cannot be speaker unless basically he's, a, he's attractive to, to a certain degree to all the members of the House. The Speaker of the House of Commons lives on parliamentary grounds in a house that's set aside for him. So he's a person of the House. He's, I believe, he's he, he's exempted from running for office because in in Great Britain, power stems from the House of Commons. So he is from the House, but he doesn't have to run for office, and that's another way of insulating him from partisan politics. So I know this is so sensible; it couldn't possibly work in D.C. <clears throat> but every time, <clears throat> pardon me, every time I I tune into the House of Commons and see the Speaker. Uh, slap down a member or two or basically get things in line or control apps. I really like, especially the former speaker, John Burko, who I thought was sort of a magician, kind of a master of this. Oh, is this a, is this kind of reform anybody would buy except me? John, no, no one would <laughs> buy it except you. And I'll tell you why. This has come up over the years, you know. Uh, there was a group, I think it was 1950, uh, the, the Blue Ribbon Panel, political scientists, and they issued a report and it was page one Page one story, this report, New York Times, LA Times, San Francisco Chronicle, uh, toward a more responsible government. Now, they used responsible the way we would use the word responsive, but they advocated, you know, diminishing the part, the part of the power, party, sharing power. And Senator Fulbright, even before that, you know, Roosevelt used to complain about this. I, you know, he, he wanted to make his party pure. Why do we have these Southern Democrats? They drive me crazy. And Senator Fulbright, William Fulbright, actually came to Harry Truman with some idea about how to share power like this in both the executive branch uh, and, and the legislative branch. And from then on, Truman would call Senator Fulbright, Senator Halfbright behind his back. Um, you know, here's the, here's the idea. After World War II, no American, the, whatever the academics wanted, no American, you know, we had 12 million men in uniform. They didn't want to follow anything Europe had done. Europe's government had yeah. sort of been an abject failure. And when you think about the British model, Look, we rebelled against their model. We fought a war with them. We didn't like their model. And despite Jefferson's language in the Declaration of Independence about the string of usurpations of the king, most of the things in the Declaration, if you read it carefully, were nothing King George had done. They, some, their stuff Parliament had done. So built, built into our DNA is if the British are doing it, God let alone the Italians, we ain't going to do it. So <laughs> I think that's probably a non-starter. 
Uh, Tim, did you have anything you wanted to add? Well, um, you know, uh, normally at uh, this point in an episode, we would go into a feature called Who Had the Worst Week in California Politics? The Worst Week. Worst Week. Worst Week. But I think this week, it's really clear that we've spent the entire episode talking about who had the worst week in California politics. I, you know, I can't really think of anybody yeah. off the top. You couldn't of think that. of anybody in California who had a worse week. So we're going to go national. Capital Weekly podcast now is national. So we came up with Kevin McCarthy. And uh, our guest of the, on the podcast is welcome to bail out. Usually, uh, they don't want to get involved in smacking somebody. But since we're doing McCarthy, you're more than welcome to stay in. Oh, it's I don't mind. I, you know, I don't. He, he's, you know, you you can maybe uh, answer something for me. So, I guess it was about eight years ago he was also trying to become speaker, and that was derailed. Can you talk about that? And does that have, does is what we're seeing today in any way an echo of that? It's it was the same people, it's the same group, and um, but but that time, uh, McCarthy who had the most votes then, and there was no obvious successor, he withdrew. And and they ended up picking Paul Ryan and Ryan didn't want it. He had to be drafted. He was wanted to he wanted to chair the budget committee. That's what he trained his whole his whole career for. Uh, Paul Ryan, look, he's ambitious. All politicians are ambitious. I mean, you know, you know how this goes, guys. I mean, you run for city council in Milpitas. And, but in the back of your mind, you think, well, I could be president of the United States. So I know they're all ambitious, but but but. Paul Ryan did not want the speakership. That was not something he had angled for, unlike McCarthy. But McCarthy thought, all right, I'll withdraw. I'm not, I'm not going to fight these people. Apparently, what he's learned and what he's decided is it was a mistake to withdraw, and he doesn't tend to do it. And that's why he's got his, some of his lieutenants are going out there saying, we'll run 200 uh, times if we have to. So, yeah, well, McCarthy's been here before. Uh, he lost that battle. He's trying to come up with a new... Uh, outcome this time. And, you know, by Monday, when our listeners are tuning in, he may have prevailed or he may have withdrawn again. Well, and that that battle back then got ugly. It got personal. And I know that there were allegations uh, from some of the con- very conservative Freedom Caucus uh, folks that he had had an affair with a, a congresswoman from North Carolina. Both she was married. He was married. It got very personal, very ugly. And I'm wondering if this could go in that direction if it keeps dragging out uh you know i I feel like this could be could be trench warfare you know yeah uh, my question for you guys where is gaylord parkinson when the republicans need him most he never was at the 11th commandment was that gaylord Gaylord parkinson was a obstetrician from san diego who of course san diego okay yes in the well and an obstetrician he helped midwife the reagan governorship but he was uh, chairman of the California Republican Party when that was a job sort of for uh, a civilian. And he came up with this, thou shalt speak no ill of a fellow Republican. Reagan, this was 1966. Reagan embraced it instantly. Uh, why not? Because it was aimed at, not at Reagan, it was aimed to help Reagan. It was aimed at George Christopher, the um, ex-mayor of San Francisco, who was a Greek Im- immigrant whose family had made money in the dairy business. He'd been a very popular mayor of San Francisco, and he was a liberal. Liberal Republicans were a thing then. And this was, Christopher's normal thing was to attack Reagan. And this suddenly, it was, the law was de- laid down. You're not to attack him. And if you do, they'll be, it'll, it'll come back on you threefold. Christopher adhered to the 11th commandment. It helped Reagan, but it's helped California Republicans for a long time. 
and it helped and Reagan took it nationally and it helped Republicans for the last time. Um, Donald Trump, it's safe to say, never heard of Gaylord Parkinson. He barely heard of Reagan. And Trump doesn't Trump does not practice the 11th commandment. And you're seeing to me um, some of the fruits of it. Uh, great. Well, Carl, thank you so much. Carl Cannon, thanks for joining us. Uh, this is very informative and you've helped us guide our way through this uh, thing that's going on. And I think about four minutes ago, as we speak, we're taping this on Friday morning, Pacific time. It's noon back in DC. And I think they're going in right now. So we'll see what happens with the next episode of this. But thank you so much, Tim Foster. As usual, thank you so much. And thanks so much to Gaylord Parkinson for making an appearance in this episode. <laughs> it's been a pleasure, guys. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week. The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations.